Hello and welcome to the On-Call Consults and Less Than 10 Minute series on ENT in a Nutshell, a compliment to Headmere's online survival guide. I'm your host, Will Dittar, and today we are joined by Dr. Katie Van Abel, a board-certified head and neck surgeon. In this episode, we will cover post-tonsillectomy bleeds. Let's jump right in. So post-tonsillectomy bleeds or hemorrhage can occur anytime, typically in the two weeks following tonsillectomy, but are generally classified as primary, which occur within the first 24 hours, or secondary, which occur most commonly between days 5 to 10 following surgery. The severity of the bleed varies from mild to severe with life-threatening hemorrhage. The frequency varies in the literature, but generally bleed rates of around 3% are quoted. While this episode is focused on post-tonsillectomy bleeds, the principles of management also apply to torus patients, though post-transoral robotic surgery patients have higher rates of hemorrhage, ranging from 5 to 10% in the literature. So Dr. Van Abel, are there any can't-miss diagnoses or situations to be aware of before seeing these patients? Well... Bleeding may stop by the time the patient is seen in the emergency department, and it's extremely important to inspect the entire tonsillar fossa and look for any clot. These patients should all be evaluated regardless of whether the ER provider reports resolution of the bleeding. Be wary of disturbing any clot and ready to address large volume bleeding if you do decide to try to remove the clot. And what equipment do you bring when you go to see these patients? You want to make sure you have a headlight tongue depressors, and suction. It's not uncommon for blood to be sprayed during the exam, so protective equipment like eyewear, mask, and gown is recommended. You want to have some sort of vasoconstricting agent such as oxymetazoline or afrin, and often having something that will numb the nose such as cetacane spray or hurricane spray is helpful. If you have it available, having a suction cautery available would be very, very helpful. If not, silver nitrate sticks can do the trick for uh, slower bleeding. Anytime that you're going to be seeing a patient with a uh, oropharyngeal hemorrhage, you want to make sure that you have something to tap and padod the bleeding if you can't uh, get control of it any other way. Having tonsil sponges and curved ring forceps or a caramel can all be helpful in the case of active bleeding. And you always want to have an airway cart immediately available or at least know exactly where it is uh, when going to see these patients. And can you describe your approach when high volume active hemorrhage is occurring? First and foremost, you want to make sure that the patient has a safe airway, which we'll talk about in a moment. You want to make sure that they have large bore IV access. And uh, in the case of significant hemorrhage, you want to be communicating with your anesthesia or ER provider about the amount of blood loss that you're actually experiencing. You also want to make sure that you have IV access if you're noticing any unstable vital signs. The patient should be sitting upright and you should have at least two Yonker suctions available. If the patient is maintaining their airway, then preferably they should be emergently moved to the operating room for intubation with the most experienced laryngoscopist. If the patient is unable to protect their airway, then you should consider securing their airway where you currently are. This can be done with direct laryngoscopy or occasionally through fiber optic, transnasal, or transoral approaches, or also tracheostomy. Remember, anything that has a camera on it may get coated with blood during your attempted intubation, which can result in a loss of your view. So you should be prepared to do a tracheotomy and have someone pulling that equipment and injecting the neck if possible. Prior to obtaining a secure airway, you can attempt to mitigate the bleeding by holding a tonsil sponge on a long clamp or a sponge stick soaked in oxymetazoline over the bleeding source to tamponade the bleeding while en route to the operating room. In case of brisk bleeding, pressure should be maintained continuously Uh, And this is where we hear the legendary tales of residents riding the cart to the operating room. And you also need to make sure that you alert your anesthesia or senior residents immediately. Remember that children may not tolerate any tonsillar pressure, uh, and so you may not be able to control their bleeding en route to the operating room, which may uh, push you to secure their airway before transport. 
So assuming that the patient is stable in maintaining their airway with either a very low volume ooze or that the bleeding has actually stopped, what history and physical exam do you obtain and what equipment do you need? So physical exam is really crucial to determine whether the patient is actively bleeding. Bleeding typically occurs from either the superior or inferior tonsillar poles. You should pay attention uh, to the patient's airway during your exam, their vital signs, and their pulse oximetry. Some providers suggest gently removing any visible clots. If you do decide to do this, be aware of the fact that you may cause accidentally a significant bleeding that may put your airway at risk. So you should always have the supplies necessary to secure the airway and control the bleeding if you do decide to do this. Many institutions recommend leaving the clot until you have the airway secure in the operating room. If time allows, Basic history should include the volume of bleeding, any previous interventions, the time of surgery, the method of tonsillectomy, as well as uh, the indication for surgery. In addition, underlying risk factors should be assessed, such as bleeding disorders, blood thinning medications, or any other cardiopulmonary comorbidities. Additional important history includes how far the patient lives from the hospital, as this can influence disposition after your intervention. And are there any labs or imaging that are helpful in these situations? So a CBC and type and screen should definitely be ordered, but typically no imaging is indicated. And what are your steps for management? When do you consider going to the OR versus bedside management? For mild cases, you may be able to use ice water rinses and something like tranexamic acid topically or via IV. This may allow you to see where the blood is coming from so that you can treat it with silver nitrate or suction cautery. It also may just resolve the bleeding if the patient's able to tolerate all of this and there's nothing active going on. Note that if you do use tranexamic acid, uh, this should generally be avoided in individuals with significant cardiac or stroke risk. Generally, a young child who is actively bleeding will require a trip to the operating room. Adults and older children or teens without brisk bleeding who can tolerate bedside cautery may not require a trip to the operating room. In these instances, spraying the throat with hurricane spray, followed by cautery of the tonsillar fossa, if you can see the area that's bleeding, um, with either silver nitrate or your suction cautery, and subsequent compression with gauze or tonsil sponge soaked in oxymetazoline uh, and local anesthetic may be sufficient. Should the conservative bedside measures fail, the patient will require a trip to the operating room. Any bedside interventions that uh, you are thinking about doing should be approached with caution if you're unsure of your ability to control the situation should the bleeding acutely worsen. So, for example, somebody who's having trouble controlling their airway or a young child, uh, I'd be very careful about disturbing any clot. And briefly, what are some of your hemorrhage control techniques that you might employ in the operating room? Once in the operating room, you should always ensure that you have all of the equipment for each airway option, including tracheotomy. Patients may require direct intubation, fiber optic intubation, or an open approach like a tracheostomy, and you should be ready to assist with obtaining the airway in any of these scenarios. If a direct laryngoscopy is possible, many providers use rapid sequence intubation to prevent aspiration of blood or food. As with any difficult airway, having several backup options is always important. Interoperative techniques for hemorrhage control include the use of suction cautery, bipolar cautery, clips, or perhaps suture ligation. And what disposition do you typically recommend for these patients? If the patient is not actively bleeding at the time they are seen or the bleeding is stopped at the bedside, observation in the emergency department for a few hours or admitting for overnight observation can be considered. Typically, this decision will be based on factors such as the severity of bleeding, the patient's age, their CBC, reliability of the patient to follow directions, and distance from the emergency department. 
Generally, patients felt to be at significant risk of re-bleeding should be admitted for at least overnight observation. And what discharge instructions do you actually give to these patients? The instructions are similar to when the patient underwent their tonsillectomy initially. If they required cauterization uh, for their bleed, then they have a new SR and will need to continue a soft diet for another 10 days. The clock also resets on the healing and risk of bleeding, so I generally advise no travel for two weeks as well as return precautions in case of another bleeding episode. For pain control, they should be given Tylenol and typically ibuprofen, with narcotics reserved for adults or adolescent patients in select situations. Thank you, Dr. Van Abel. And that concludes our episode on post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage or bleeds. Thanks for listening.